If you've got your Bible with you, you can turn to Psalm chapter 14. This is a wisdom psalm. And hopefully, we will go out today with more wisdom rather than more foolishness. And if you hear anything from me, you may leave with more foolishness. So I hope that you hear from the Lord today through his word. Um, just for fun, I want you to take a look at this picture on the screen. And tell me, it's a Lego minifigure, I, I know, but who is the person? Okay, so everyone over 25 knew who that was. Any younger? Ellie, did you see Ellie didn't know. Our college student didn't know. This is Mr. T. Um, what was Mr. T famous for saying? I pity the fool. I pity the fool. Okay. Um, this is for all of your random trivia nights. Here's some random, random trivia about Mr. T. He actually got that phrase from the Bible. In an interview with some late night talk show person, he tells them this. He says, when you pity someone, you're showing them mercy. I didn't start this pity stuff. It was in the Bible. You'll find pity so many times in the Bible and fools so many times in the Bible. So I just put them together and pity the fool. That's what he said. Okay. So we're not going to rely on Mr. T too much for our help in biblical interpretation this morning, but he's not too far off base here, to be honest. So Psalm 14 starts talking about and describing the fool that maybe Mr. T pities in, in some detail. And so I want to read this text together. It's only seven verses. It may sound a little familiar to you from some New Testament writing, and we'll talk about that as we go. Psalm 14, starting with verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous." You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Let's pray. Lord, bless your word this morning. God, we are... Our own inclinations are to foolishness. The world around us is impacting us towards foolishness. The enemy would be impressing foolishness upon us. And so, Lord, we need your wisdom desperately today. Not just to see how we should act, but to see who we really are apart from you, apart from grace. And so, Lord, um, help us to see it and then to be changed as a result of it, as a result of a relationship with Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. So if you were to call somebody a fool, number one, it's not a very nice thing. I don't think anybody would appreciate being called a fool. But what are we usually saying? If we're saying that that person is foolish, what are we usually trying to communicate about them? Well, they they maybe don't understand something yet. Maybe they're just not very smart. Maybe they lack experience 
or maturity or discernment or wisdom or, or maybe all of those things. Some other words for fool, and you can kind of look up in the sources, but uh, blockhead, nitwit, buffoon, nincompoop, that's a favorite of mine, dunce, these are all kind of other words for, for fool. Most of the time when we use the term fool, this is kind of the thing that we're getting at. And it's not good to be called a fool. If you are a fool, Mr. T pities you. And you don't need to be pitied by Mr. T. Verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now there's a lot in this little phrase here that we need to talk about. It's based, is, is it saying, though, just from that phrase, is this saying that people who don't believe in God are not smart? That's not what it's communicating. It's not at all. The word that the psalmist here uses uh, is, in the Hebrew, it's nabal, which is translated wicked. So fool doesn't mean unintelligent. It means wicked, impious, godless, immoral. That's the kind of idea behind it. So the psalmist isn't calling people who don't believe in the existence of God dumb or unintelligent at all. They are capable of still understanding that God does exist. In fact, a lot of people who are claiming to be atheists and to say that they believe that there is no God are some of the most intelligent people that there are. They're very smart, very educated. I think the author here, God here, through the author, is saying that it's not a lack of intelligence that leads a person to reject belief in God. It's a lack of righteousness. So the fool says in his heart, there is no God. In that heart, there is foolishness, not righteousness. Righteous, a lack of righteousness is what leads a person to reject belief in God. Now, the majority of people in the world maybe don't reject the idea that there is a creator as long as that creator just leaves them alone and lets them do their thing. As long as that God, if there is one, as long as he just minds his own business, whatever, he can exist. This is the majority of the world. What people really reject is the idea that the creator now demands morality from his creation. That's where the rubber hits the road and that's where the conflict usually comes. So when, when we begin to understand that we have not evolved into the people that we are, that we were designed with intent and created with purpose by a holy and loving God, when we understand that, there comes with it this understanding of a sense of accountability. And boy, there may be no dirtier word in our culture right now than that. Accountability. It was involved with the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. They didn't want to be accountable for their actions, and so where did they, what did they do? They hid. It was involved with Cain's murder of Abel. Involved in the life of Jacob and in the life of David himself, they wanted to avoid being accountable for their actions and their sin, and so do we. It's rampant. When our energy is spent blaming others instead of just owning up to our own mistakes and taking accountability for our own actions, we become the fool that this chapter is describing. I heard another pastor say this week as I was studying, he said, a lack of evidence of God's existence is not the true reason atheists reject a belief in God. 
their rejection is due to a desire to live free of the moral constraints that God requires and to escape the guilt that accompanies the violation of those constraints. So rather than struggle against a constant guilty conscience of, of sinning and then understanding that they've sinned and having to take accountability for those actions, some people just reject the idea of God altogether. It's easier to just reject the idea of God. The fact that some people just insist on denying the existence of God, as Jason was talking about the carpet thing, it doesn't actually eliminate God from existence, though, just because you say you don't believe that he is there. Psalm 14 just says that it speaks to their, under, their own standing, then, as a fool. A fool is the person that has that belief and that idea. If... if Maybe not carpet, but if I, if I say that I don't believe gravity exists and I go jump off of a building, does gravity still exist? Yes, it certainly does. Simply saying that I don't believe in God doesn't delete him from existence, no matter who says it. The problem is our human hearts, they want to eliminate God. They want to eliminate God so that they can eliminate morality, the need for it, the accountability of it. Our natural desire is just to deny the truth of the law because the law reveals our sin, and when we know it, it makes us accountable to it. And so that's where that whole phrase, ignorance is bliss, comes from. If I don't know what's required of me, then I can't be held accountable for it. And that's some people's idea, maybe. Well, the Bible, as we'll talk about, pretty much blows that idea out of the water. We're all responsible, we're all accountable. For a person to reject the existence of God, they have to first also reject the existence of sin in the world. If you're going to eliminate God from the equation, you also have to eliminate sin. Because if God is real, then sin matters. Our offense of that God is a big deal. It brings death, Scripture says. But if God doesn't exist, if we can eliminate God from the equation altogether, then sin is just some moral construct made by man-made institutions to try to keep people under their thumb. right? And there are people around the world, probably especially in America, that believe that very thing. That churches are designed by guys to get your money and to keep you under their authority. But the Bible shows something very different. The Bible shows something else. It argues that our conscience itself bears witness to the truth and existence of God. Listen to Romans chapter 2, verse 15. It says that the work of the law is written on our hearts and that our conscience also bears witness. And there's a lot more in Romans 2 you can go and read about that. Morality exists, guys. Right exists, wrong exists, bad, good. They exist because God exists. And it's proven by the fact that the foolish and immoral heart wants to suppress it and eliminate it. Actually proves the existence of God. Listen to Romans chapter 1, 18 and following, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's not a lack of intelligence. It's their lack of righteousness that spurs them to suppress the truth. Keep reading. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God's shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without an excuse. They are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. There's that word again. Foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and images and creeping things. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. See, current culture says that rejecting absolute truth is actually what makes you moral and good now. Do you see how twisted that is? If you want the world to accept you, and if you want them to look at you with admiration, it's easy. Just give up on godliness. Ignore morality. Don't worry about right and wrong. And, unfortunately, under pressure from changing culture, Christians and even some churches have abandoned true godliness in order to be praised and accepted by the world. Let me just kind of phrase this a little differently so we can hopefully see the absurdity of it all. Our current culture says that to really be moral, you must first actually abandon morality. Look at the news and prove me wrong. This is what we're being told. It doesn't matter what you believe is right and wrong. If it goes against what I believe or what someone else believes, then you must be wrong. Because your belief is infringing on my lifestyle. Today, the ultimate test of love is not being truthful and honest. The ultimate test of love is acceptance. You and I, we live in a world where the only people who are good are the ones who say that nothing is ever bad. If your moral truth impedes on my moral truth, then your moral truth is wrong and oppressive and offensive and therefore you're wrong and you must abandon it. Do we see why the author of Psalm 14 calls this person a fool? It's not because they're uneducated. It's because they love sin. Jesus explains it this way in John chapter 3 verse 20. He says, for everyone practicing evil hates the light. And does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. This is the problem. Our hearts love darkness. They love sin. The fool says these things, chapter 14 verse 1 says, in his heart. The real reason behind denying God is almost never intellectual at its core. It's moral. He says it in his heart, not in his head. It's not a a struggle to comprehend. It's that he loves his sin. It's that we love our sin. The phrasing here in Psalm 14 of that he said in his heart, it reminds us that it's possible for someone to say in his mind that there is a God and yet deny it in his heart and in his lifestyle. It's possible for there to be a disconnect in those things. A commentator said, in effect, we say that there is no God when we shut him up in far off heaven and never think of him as concerned in our own personal affairs. To strip him of justice and rob him of his control is the part of the fool. And in effect is a term that's called practical atheism. 
You say you believe, and yet you live completely contrary to your supposed belief system. A right belief of God in the heart and in the head always leads to outward displays of righteousness, though. It always does. Eventually, in some way, those things that are connecting lead to outward examples and displays of righteousness. Jesus talked about this often when he compared the spring of fresh water and the spring of salt water and the good fruit tree and the bad fruit tree. There's evidence of a changed life. Look at how in verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 14, look at how the author describes the fool who says there is no God. Verse 1, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who do who does good. Verse 3, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who do good, not even one. Now verse 2 is kind of sandwiched in the middle there and I think represents Mr. T's version of God pitying fools. It says that he looks down. The Lord looks down from heaven to see if anybody understands, to see if anybody acts wisely, to see if anyone seeks after him at all. And guess what he finds? Zero. Nada. No one. It's not a surprise that this is the case, in my opinion. Adam, who represented the whole human race, plunged mankind into sin when he sinned. So our very nature, according to Ephesians chapter 2, our very nature is corrupted by sin. Paul says there, we are children of wrath. Okay? Our capacity to do good and to be good has been short-circuited by sin in the world. And apart from Christ, every decision we make and every action we take is tainted by sin. Now, you probably recognize this text from Roman, or from Psalm 14 because Paul quotes it in Romans 3 to prove the point there that no one is righteous. You've, you're familiar with the verse Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned. He is corralling everybody into this pen saying, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or you're a Gentile, you are a sinner. And brothers and sisters, we're all in that corral together even today. Doesn't matter our backgrounds, where we came from, our economic status, none of that matters. God looks down on the children of man, and who does he see that seeks after him? No one. None of us are good on our own. Nobody has to teach a child to do bad stuff. It comes naturally. Our, our job as parents is to teach them again, to uh, teach against the bad stuff, to teach them morality and truth and, and grace and God's word. And his law just comes naturally to us now. And apart from Christ, even our good deeds are mingled with selfish, wrong motives. If it's not done for the glory of God, it's not done for the right reasons. Psalm 14 verses 1 through 3 is a surprising and harsh, but in my opinion, accurate description of the human condition without God. This is us. So we might say, we are the fool to some degree here. The psalmist says this, he calls this person a fool and he explains why. But a fool is described in detail in other scriptures as well. And you could do a word study on this, both in the Hebrew and in the Greek in the New Testament. And you can see the word fool is used a lot. 
I just want to take a few, and these are in your notes, a few descriptions of a fool from the book of Proverbs. As you're finding those in your notes um, and thinking about foolishness, somebody tell me, what would be the opposite of foolishness? Wisdom, right? Being wise, wisdom. So it's not just book smarts. It's not intelligence by itself. It's, it's wisdom. Bible scholar uh, Tremper Longman gives a definition of a wise person that I think is really helpful. Listen to this. He says, a wise person is a person who navigates life well. Even today, when describing a wise person, sometimes we'll use another word. We'll say that that person is mature. Not in physical attributes necessarily, but in, in, in who they are as a person. Maybe their character. They're just mature. So in your notes, it looks like this. A wise or mature person learns how to navigate life well and develops skills to handle problems biblically. Biblically, not, not according to the pattern of this world, but biblically. So let's hear from Proverbs. I'm just going to go through these really quickly. These are descriptions of a foolish person. A fool hates knowledge and desperately needs to learn some sense. A fool is complacent, easily frustrated, reckless, careless, and they speak lies. A fool is easily angered, and because they run their mouth, they invite a beating. A fool also does not control himself, but gives full vent to his anger, and this goes with the running your mouth kind of thing. A fool despises loving instruction and brings sadness to his parents. A fool thinks that sin is funny and repeats his folly over and over again, kind of like a dog who returns to his vomit, Proverbs 26 says. A fool's behavior is like an archer who shoots and wounds everyone around him. Imagine that. Imagine, I just in my mind, not an archer, but I'm thinking of a Civil War um, soldier who's shooting his the people standing in line next to him. That is a foolish person. Someone needs to take that weapon away because they are injuring everyone around them. Proverbs 17, the last one on the list, says, It would be better to run across a mother bear robbed of her cubs than a foolish person in their folly. You guys understand what that means, right? When you, the mother does not have her cubs, she gets angry and she causes destruction, pain, sometimes death. It would be better to run across that kind of a bear than a fool in the middle of his folly. Why is a fool characterized by all of these things? Because they have said in their heart, there's no God. So if there's no God, then it doesn't matter if I get angry and fly off the handle because there's no consequences for that sin. Yeah, maybe I get in trouble at work, but who really cares? right? If you eliminate God from the equation, what does it matter? The void that's left when you take God out will always be filled with more and more foolishness. It's not even an intentional decision sometimes to do something foolish. It's just that when wisdom is forsaken, folly fills the vacuum. Folly wins. Foolishness wins the day. When God is pushed away, and we see this so evident in our culture today, when God is pushed away, foolishness is embraced. Almost like it's now the right thing. 
I can say this definitively because Proverbs 14 says this. God looks down from heaven on the children of man and finds that every single one of them has become corrupt. There are many who try their hardest to pretend that there is no God, to forget about him, to to say he doesn't exist. Maybe those who admit he exists but wish that he would just leave them alone, but God never forgets about us. He looks down. Notice that. He didn't just like forget and ignore his creation he's looking down he sees all he's always here and what does he see he sees people who don't seek after him and so let me just say it this way i hope you understand when i say this that there's there's no such thing as a seeker friendly church you can't have a a seeker friendly church because no one actually seeks god right that's what psalm 14 says no one actually seeks after god i heard another pastor say We deceive ourselves into thinking that man on his own really does seek God. Don't, but don't all the religion and rituals and practices from the beginning of time demonstrate that man does seek after God? No, he says, not at all. If man initiates the search, then he doesn't seek the true God, the God of the Bible. Instead, he seeks an idol that he makes himself. And boy, is is that true. According to scripture, God seeks after people, not the other way around. We don't seek after him in our own. He seeks after us. If, if we were to seek God, we would inevitably bow to an idol of our own making instead. But because of Christ's atoning sacrifice, God, by His Spirit, has moved in the hearts of men, convicting of sin, revealing their need, opening their eyes to truth, and, and granting by His grace repentance and salvation even. Truth be told, that... What I just said is what sets Christianity apart from every other belief system. See, religion says you've got to do these things and behave this way, do all of these things in a certain manner in order to earn God's favor and acceptance. Only in Christianity does God himself leave heaven and come down to dwell with sinful man and rescue people who could never earn his favor on their own. Only in Christianity does God do that. Now, chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, they deal with the deep and profound fallenness of mankind. Verses 4 through 6 now consider the fate of God's people in such a fallen world. And there's a little bit of back and forth in these verses. It appears, like in verse 4, it appears as the evildoers that are here, it appears that they, they eat up the people of God, just like they eat bread and that they don't call upon the Lord. So it looks like they're in charge. It looks like they're consuming God's people and they're ruling over them and they're the ones who have the upper hand like they eat bread. Kind of a simple, not a big deal. They write off the righteous as easily as they write off their next meal of bread. No big deal. In verse 6, the wicked says they shame the plans of the poor. They work against them. They disregard them just like their next meal as well. But the reality is, as we see in verse 5, the reality is that they should be in great terror because God is with the righteous. And if God is with the righteous, who is he not with? The unrighteous, the wicked, the evildoer. And that should cause some fear in us, in people. They may try to deny it, but every person 
lives under the cloud of knowing that they are battling against God and they can never win. They can't erase the consciousness of God that he's put in their, in their hearts and their minds because it's one that he's given them, according to Romans 2.15. The consciousness of God within them, the law, and it's burned in their hearts and their minds. God is a refuge for the poor, he says, that can never be breached. It can never be demolished. His people are protected. Spurgeon used these verses to consider ways that Christians should stand strong, even though they might be shamed and mocked in the workplace or in the world. I want, I want to read a, a quote that was challenging to me this week from him. He says, You young men in the great firms of London, you working men that work in the factories, you're sneered at. Let them sneer. If they can sneer you out of your religion, you have not got any worth having. He goes on, remember, you can be laughed into hell, but you can never be laughed out of it. Oh, but they will point at you. Cannot you bear to be pointed at? But they will tease you. Let them tease you. Can that hurt a man that is a man? If you are a limp creature that has no backbone, you may be afraid of jokes and jeers and jests. But if God has made you upright, stand upright and be a man. The Lord, he says, the psalmist here, is with the righteous. And he says the Lord is their refuge. He is their defense in times of trouble. He is that place where they can run to, maybe when they're being jeered at or made fun of, they can run to him for protection and for peace. No matter what anyone says, no matter what anyone does, we should never be ashamed to run to the Lord in our time of need. Now look at verse 7. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. This, I think, is kind of David's game set and match for foolishness and for the evildoers. When the Lord redeems and restores his people by means of salvation from his own hand, it says, out of Zion, his people will rejoice. God's people will celebrate their deliverance. How? With gladness, with rejoicing. Literally, it says that they will be brightened up or made gleesome or given cause to be merry. They will be full of joy and will give thanks to their king. That's how we respond. We rejoice and celebrate Jesus' victory over sin and death. And we look forward to the celebration among God's people when he's going to come again. And he's going to set everything right. It has been and will be the great cause of rejoicing for salvation comes out of Zion, it says. What David and other Old Testament authors anticipated and wrote about and celebrated here, we see in full in the revelation of Christ and through his word. He is that salvation that has come from Zion. He comes to rescue every person that sets their hope in him. And that's how we combat, if you will, foolishness number one we recognize in my own power i'm not i'm not seeking after god that's not my heart's inclination immediately i I don't seek after god i'm not really good so what's the solution it's not to despair it's not to fake it it's not to try and ignore or eliminate god from the equation it's to surrender 
It's to submit. It's to celebrate salvation that comes from the hand of God through Jesus Christ. He is that salvation and he comes to rescue every person who sets their hope in him and in him alone. So where are you setting your hope? We're faced with that question as we wrap it up this morning. Where are you setting your hope? Are you setting it in the work of Christ on behalf of sinners? Or are you setting it on your own work and trying to be good enough to earn God's favor? We've learned today that even our good intentions aren't good if they're not done with the right intentions, with the right, with the right glory of God in our minds. Only submitting to the Lordship of Christ in salvation and having our sins replaced with His righteousness is what pleases God in the end. He's done it for you on the cross. My prayer would be that you receive Him, put your faith in Him today. Let's pray. Lord, I'm just personally convicted as I read through these verses again, God, of of how often the foolishness in me is clear. The sin in me is primary. And yet, Lord, you have come to do away with that. You, by your death and resurrection, have overcome sin. You have beat the grave. We have nothing to fear, and we are not slaves to sin any longer. And so, Lord, I pray as salvation has come out of Zion from your right hand, Lord, that we would look to Christ and stand firm when the culture is wishy-washy and pushing us to abandon morality and to ignore God and, and your word. Lord, that we would stand firm with you as our refuge, knowing that if you are against the wicked, that you are with the righteous. And so, Lord, we desire to be righteous, not based on our own goodness, but on the the righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ and that only comes by salvation and through grace. And so, Lord, I pray that if there are any out here who are listening this morning who have not put their faith fully in Christ, that they would recognize the sinfulness and the error of their ways. They are not good on their own. And that they would put their faith in Him because He is He is more than enough. Lord, he has won the battle, finished the war, and we only need to follow our king. And so, Lord, I pray that we would believe today. Help our unbelief, Lord. And as we sing now, Lord, I pray that your spirit would move, convict, change. Do your will in your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.